What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Some of the highlights from this week's episode include Andrew Wiseman on the Department of Justice need for a dedicated compliance resource, Dylan Tokar reports in the Wall Street Journal, what will be the economic downturn and what will it mean for compliance departments and compliance budgets, Kristen Broden reports in the Wall Street Journal, How does work from home trigger new compliance concerns? Did OFAC create a giant compliance headache? Dick Casson explores in the FCPA blog. What steps can you take to refresh your whistleblower program? When does cooperation become collusion? Five ideas for compliance officers in the new normal. Robert Biscop explains in CCI. Why is the fraud Pentagon even more important in the age of coronavirus? Jonathan Marks explores in Borden Fraud. What does Bluebell liability mean for executive liability? We explore that. And finally, a review of the topical podcasts this week, including the final episode of The Compliance Life. All on This Week in FCPA, produced by the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, along with Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors himself, for This Week in FCPA, episode 207 for the week ending, May 29, 2020, the cleverly called end of May edition. Jay, as May ends and June begins, will the next month be any different for you? Mm, I don't know. Uh, school's ending here a uh, week from Friday, so I, I think it might be the same. How about you, Tom? So school has ended, but um, it's not going to be any different. The holiday wasn't any different. The weekends aren't any different. The days aren't any different. But that's okay because the world of compliance and ethics still rotates. So we have some of the week's top compliance stories for our listeners, Jay. Can we start with uh, our good friend, former DOJ, head of the fraud section, Andrew Wiseman. He was interviewed by our other good friend, Dylan Tokar, in the Wall Street Journal, Risk and Compliance Journal. And uh, as you know, Andrew Wiseman has had two stints at the DOJ, and then he uh, left the DOJ, and not left, but he transcended, transitioned rather over to the Robert Mueller team, and now he's back in private practice. I had the chance to meet Andrew Wiseman here in Houston. He was a part of the Enron task force, uh, obviously uh, cut his teeth, prosecuting some pretty high-profile individuals, and he had some really interesting things uh, to say to um, Dylan. Uh, The thing that uh, probably interested me the most were his thoughts on does the uh, fraud section and does the DOJ need a compliance expert? He was instrumental in bringing Wei Chen in, and he, of course, supports that because uh, the Department of Justice, they are prosecutors. They're not compliance 
uh, professionals and not compliance practitioners. So uh, he really advocates having that subject matter expertise available to uh, the Department of Justice in FCPA investigations and would advocate for that program going forward. He is also one of the um, architects of the original, or not the original, but the FCPA pilot program of 2016, which led to the FCPA corporate enforcement policy announced uh, in uh, by Rod Rosenstein in November 2017. So uh, really giving leniency to corporations for uh, cooperation, or excuse me, self-disclosure, cooperation, extensive remediation, and uh, forfeiture of ill-gotten gain or profit disgorgement. So a great interview. Andrew Wiseman is, uh, I think he's still in his uh, early to mid-50s, and so he's, you know, can be uh, back uh, in the Department of Justice uh, again and uh, clearly one of uh, the nation's great civil servants. So it was great to see this interview with uh, him going forward. Jay, um, what does the or what will the economic downturn mean for compliance budgets? Uh, good question. We go back to the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal with uh, another friend of the podcast, Kristen Broughton. And uh, compliance layoff, budgets cuts, raise prospect of looser internal oversight. Corporate compliance departments are finding themselves in the crosshairs of corporate cost cutters, raising concerns about the potential mistakes or misbehavior to go undetected. Layoffs and furloughs in compliance departments have arrived in sectors hardest hit by the coronavirus pandemic, according to consultants, researchers, and compliance officers. Compliance teams have largely been sheltered from major budget cuts in the past past decade, according to Julie Myers-Wood, chief executive of compliance and investigation firm Guidepost Solutions. She believes it's unrealistic to think in a company that has mass layoffs across the board that compliance will be spared. She thinks fewer people will be asked to do more. Anti-corruption organizations have warned that the economic upheaval caused by the pandemic could create an environment that's ripe for bribery. Andy McNeil, director of the research at the ACFE, the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, said all of these factors are creating the perfect storm for fraud risk. Some compliance departments are dividing responsibilities to ensure that the most critical responsibilities, such as internal investigations, are covered, said Erica Salmon Byrne, Executive Vice President at Ethisphere, an ethics and compliance advocacy firm. Meanwhile, over at Hilton Worldwide Holdings, they've recently furloughed employees on its fraud and investigations team as part of broad cuts across the company. Hilton, like other companies in the hospitality sector, has struggled as a result of decreased travel from the pandemic. Other businesses may have a hard time handling the same workload with a smaller staff, especially as they shift priorities to accommodate smaller budgets. Companies forced to lay off or furlough compliance staff should consult internal risk assessments to help them prioritize in light of the current downturn. One way companies have maintained effective oversight with a smaller staff is by investing and deploying new technologies that we've discussed before, such as artificial intelligence, to increase efficiency and some compliance functions, such as transactions monitoring. As compliance officers navigate the pandemic and associated job cuts, they should stay on top of open internal investigations and make sure internal reporting functions, such as whistleblower hotlines, remain intact said Ms. Sam and Byrne. Quote, someday this virus will go away, 
And that is when companies will ultimately be judged for their behavior. So, Jay, uh, working from home uh, triggers some new compliance concerns. And Lloydette by Morrow wrote an article for the FCPA blog where she raised some, I thought, interesting concerns that perhaps have not gotten enough play as yet in the compliance community. And she listed three. I'm just going to take a little time to, to kind of go through each one of these uh, because they could um, – really negatively impact every compliance program. The first one was uh, what she calls the side hustle syndrome. And certainly remote working can stimulate an employee's entrepreneurial risk, uh, giving them uh, the goal or or the incentive to start or develop a side hustle, which is not problematic in and of itself. But when there's unclear guidance or inconsistent applications of rules regarding personal conflicts and conflicts of interest for the corporation, this can be certainly uh, problematic. So uh, our employees engaging in a side hustle. Uh, the uh, ubiquitous question of BYOD, bringing your own device. Uh, if you are working from home, are you using your own computer or are you using your own phone? Uh, this certainly saves money for uh, companies and increases flexibility. However, there may be a greater uh, data security risk. Uh, there can be unauthorized use of company data personal purposes. It's difficult to anticipate and comprehensively plan for many BYOD policies. And uh, indeed, many companies may not be able to actually follow their BYOD policies for employees who uh, are working from home, and you may need to revisit your policies. And the the last one is something that I think many compliance practitioners uh, have faced in the area of compliance training fatigue, but it's remote training fatigue. And organizations that promote work from home usually have a generous approach to training and personal development, and they make multiple media sources available. Obviously, that's positive, but there's a danger of deluge from virtual learning. And here, Jay, you commented on the podcast that uh, Ronnie Feldman and I did with uh, Ricardo from Broadcat, and he had a really interesting point, or he had lots of inter- interesting points, but uh, that's Ricardo Peloton. Um, but uh, one of his points was that 80 to maybe even 90% of your employees do not need a detailed one-hour uh, thou shalls and thou shall nots around the FCPA. If they're not gatekeepers within your compliance program, They basically need to be reminded, how do I raise my hand and speak up? Where do I go to raise my hand and speak up? And is it safe for me to speak up? And that can be handled through ongoing compliance communications. You can hire Ricardo's company to create some uh, pretty cool uh, animated videos that get that message across. Now, there are a 10% or 5% of your company that are gatekeepers, and they're going to need detailed FCPA and compliance training. Uh, but those people understand it. People in the compliance function need compliance training on the rules and regs and what the FCPA requires. Your legal department needs it. Your internal audit department needs it. Your accounts payable department needs it. HR may need it. But that's a limited number of people. So you can give uh, more detailed uh, compliance training 
to those gatekeepers, and they're probably going to be uh, more receptive to or receptive to it rather than uh, your uh, employee base. So think about the tailored nature of your training. It's obviously something that the DOJ has talked about, but if you've got a huge part of your employee base that just needs to be reminded. Uh, of culture, of speak up, of how to speak up, and is it safe to speak up, then you can uh, really be creative in communicating with them, and it will not induce either compliance fatigue or uh, compliance training fatigue or remote training fatigue. Good stuff, Tom. We go back to the FCPA blog from the founder, Richard Casson, and this is under at-large, OFAC creates titanic problem for compliance chiefs. Amid the coming post-COVID-19 resizing wave, when chief compliance officers request bigger budgets, don't laugh and don't blame them. This time it's OFAC's fault. Last week, OFAC, the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Asset Control, published a 35-page advisory along with State Department and U.S. Coast Guard. The advisory reflects the U.S. government's commitment to work with the private sector to prevent sanctions evasions, with a focus on three bad actors, Iran, North Korea, and Syria. The problem is this, 90% of the global supply chain moves on the seas, OFAC said, and the maritime transport industry, certain malign actors, aka smugglers, know all the ways to cheat and have learned some new ones too. Well, who's most at risk? Financial institutions, insurance companies, commodity traders, ship owners, captains, managers, operators, brokers, ship handlers, or rather ship chandlers, the list goes on. You may wonder, like he does, how a compliance department with normal resources is supposed to deal with this. Good questions. Ships move and oceans are vast. Technology can't change. Here's a quick hit list of things that OFAC says you should look for. Fresh paint. Big ships have to display their international maritime organization number on their hull. Cloaking and spoofing. Most ocean-going vessels must transmit their identification and location via high-frequency radio waves. The idea is mainly to keep crews safe. Counterfeit documents. Maritime trade generates a pile of paperwork. Ship-to-shore transfers at sea, especially at night, are a favorite technique of sanctioned evaders. Unknown UBOs. Sanctioned violators use anonymous companies with multiple levels of ownership and management to disguise their ultimate beneficial ownership of the cargo. Here's a couple more false flags and flag hopping. Sanctions evaders may falsely flag the vessels to mask illicit trade. And with bad actors putting others in legal jeopardy of sanctions violations, what's ahead for the maritime industry? OFAC said the response needs to be risk-based compliance and smarter use of enhanced due diligence. It starts with risk assessments, OFAC says, and the way the private sector can continually adopt business policies to address red flag and other anomalies that may indicate illicit or sanctionable behavior. A final note about this advisory. It promotes collective action. The Department of State, OFAC, and the U.S. Coast Guard recommend that industry groups encourage members to provide relevant information and share broadly with partners, other members, and colleagues consistent with applicable laws. That's something newish for America. Jay, one of the things that I've been trying to communicate are 
steps that a compliance practitioner can take right now in Q2 of 2020 in the midst of the coronavirus health crisis and economic dislocation. So I was gratified to see uh, lawyers from uh, Wachtell Lipton post a blog in the New York University Compliance and Enforcement Journal about uh, internal whistleblower reporting. And they gave a couple of suggestions that I think are not only spot on, but are really uh, as cost-effective as they can be. And uh, the first is to refresh your existing internal hotline, ombudsman, or other reporting system by prominently reminding employees about how the system works, how to access it, and include in such reminders a, a very strong statement from senior management encouraging employees to take advantage of the internal reporting mechanism and any off cases of compliance issues, accounting irregularities, workplace safety, or, or suspected misconduct. Second, take steps that uh, not with uh, take steps rather to make sure that the resources and institutional expertise um, necessary to respond to all reports in a timely manner are in place. That means well documented uh, reports, appropriate manner that preserves anonymity of anyone making such a report, adjusting internal controls, changing uh, internal audit scopes and priorities, and providing additional training. If your company uh, is has gone through a very large economic dislocation and layoff, uh, you may not have the same number of resources that you previously had. So you may need to draft upon or call upon uh, resources from other areas outside compliance. So if you need help in investigations, uh, what about HR? If not HR, what about your HSE department? They do investigations around uh, accidents all the time, and there's a lot of good investigators in that function, internal audit. So even if you have lost people who were specifically tasked with evaluating, triaging, and then investigating hotline reports, you need to have employees in place to take care of them uh, going forward. So I thought some uh, pretty good advice from lawyers at uh, Wachtell Lipton on that point, Jay. Next up, we have the first of two articles coming to us from Corporate Compliance Insights. This one's entitled, Drawing the Line Between Collaboration and Collusion, How Price-Fixing Allegations Creates a Strong Disincentive for Collaboration. COVID-19 is creating a gray area between legitimate collaboration and anti-competitive conclusion, or rather collusion. Not all information exchanges point to price fiction. Morrison Forster's David Cross and Margaret Webb explain the impact that this is having on lawful collaboration. Collaboration among businesses, including competitors, is critically important to help address this global pandemic. The U.S. Department of Justice Antitrust Division and the Federal Trade Commission recently recognized the need for, quote, unprecedented cooperation between federal, state, and local governments and among private businesses to protect America's health and safety during the crisis. Effective cooperation between competing businesses typically requires exchanging at least some commercially sensitive information. Unfortunately, the manner in which exchanges of information between cooperating cooperating competitors is often presented in antitrust cases involving price-fixing allegations, and this creates a strong disincentive for collaboration by too easily blurring the line between legitimate collaboration and anti-competitive behavior. This needs to change. Courts and antitrust enforcement agencies have long recognized that information exchanges between competitors often serve legitimate business purposes that can be pro-competitive. 
but competitor information exchanges can also establish antitrust violations, either as in lawful restraint on competition in and of themselves or as circumstantial evidence of a price-fixing agreement. When information exchanges are challenged as unlawful themselves in an antitrust lawsuit, the competing firms can defend the conduct as legitimate. First of all, you have information exchanges that are often pro-competitive. To analyze whether a specific conduct violates the federal antitrust laws, courts typically apply either the per se framework or the rule of reason. Under the rule of reason, judges and juries must balance the conduct's anti-competitive harm against any pro-competitive benefit. On the other hand, conduct is deemed illegal per se if it is so presumptively harmful to competition that it warrants condemnation without further inquiry into the effects in the market. Next up, we have information exchanges should not be treated always as naked price fixing. To avoid construct, misconstruing lawful collaborations between competitors as, law, as unlawful collusion, defendants in price fixing cases need to be allowed to offer evidence of legitimate business reasons for their conduct and pro-competitive benefits flowing from collaborations. Before admitting evidence of information exchanges in price-fixing cases, including those with direct evidence and unlawful conclusion, courts should first examine the legitimate business reasons and pro-competitive benefits offered by competing firms for those exchanges, just as a rule of reason analysis requires such communications. U.S. antitrust law long recognizes a critical distinction between information exchanges and naked price fixing. The latter is per se unlawful, the former is not. Courts must strictly enforce this important distinction in price fixing cases, including and perhaps especially in cases involving direct evidence of conclusion. The courts, not the plaintiffs, should decide what what legal, excuse me, what legal framework applies in such cases and what evidence is admissible to prove up the plaintiffs. Defendants should not be deprived of important opportunity to explain and defend information exchanges. And due process demands that courts take appropriate measures to avoid penalizing and deterring lawful collaboration between competing firms. But these measures are especially important today when information exchanges and other legitimate cooperation among competitors may may lead to literally saving lives in the middle of this global pandemic. What do you uh, are five ideas that a compliance officer can use in the new normal? Any thoughts? I would talk to Richard Biscup and see what he's thinking about on CCI. Well, uh, that's good because he actually has given us some thoughts. And at first, these might not seem so uh, evident, but the more I read them and studied, I really found them uh, almost self-evident. So I just like to go through them. And it really gives you a way to benchmark uh, some different things, but also extend out the reach of your compliance regime. So number one, let dynamic risk assessment become a mantra. Uh, dynamic means ongoing. So why not have uh, an ongoing risk assessment? Why not move it to almost real time? Uh, CCOs need to proactively take a leadership role in designing and embedding in internal controls, and that's why dynamic risk assessment 
and really help form the company's DNA. Second, be omnipresent with the C-suite and board. Communication is key at all things, especially when you're going up to the top of the house. So now it's a time to serve as a critical bridge for regular information to the board about optimizing their execution of fiduciary duties, particularly in light of the Bluebell and other uh, that we're talk, going to talk about later, but a, a triumph but of rulings from the Delaware Supreme Court about Caremark. Extend the eyes, ears, and indeed reach of compliance. How, uh, how was, when was the long, last time you looked at your global supply chain from the compliance perspective? Uh, this is something that you should really take a look at. Every company is looking at their global supply chain now, so why not take a look at it from um, the compliance perspective? Uh, taking, take a look at in-house resources for forensic accounting and auditing, and what can that bring to you, you from the compliance? Obviously, financial fraud has become much more in people's minds with the uh, corporate bailout and the monies being spent on coronavirus and COVID-19-related uh, health issues. So remain vigilant for financial fraud. I had John Warren from the ACFE on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, Jay, and he talked about uh, corruption is the highest form of fraud in literally uh, every region of the globe. So, uh, and then, of course, Jonathan Marks, our colleague, reminds us that in both the fraud triangle and the fraud pentagon, uh, uh, pressure is a key element, and many uh, uh, companies and individuals are under pressure. And then invest in fail-safe systems and controls. The more you can put into your controls, uh, the better your compliance program is going to be because financial, excuse me, compliance controls are essentially financial controls. So uh, uh, the more efficient your financial controls will be, the more uh, profitable your company will be. Jay, um, why is the fraud Pentagon even more important in the age of coronavirus? So as Tom said, this comes to us from our good friend, Jonathan Marks, and his board in fraud blog. And uh, Jonathan, I, I usually get his stories, and I like these because they're very historical, and it really places um, fraud and uh, anti and, and corruption really uh, puts it in a, a place where I can understand it. Uh, Jonathan, early in his career, was a forensic accountant, and he remembered reading about Michael Mickey Monis, the president of Farmore, a now defunct national deep discount chain and grocery. Uh, no, he knew that fraud is not only about obstruction, but first deflection, deception, and distraction. And Jonathan was convinced that there was a human element that must have been ignored. He then went on to name a, uh, name a rogues gallery of fraudsters, including uh, Enron's Ken Lay and Andy Fastow, WorldCom's Bernie Evers, Health South's Richard Scroshi, Tycon's Dennis Kozlowski, and finally the biggest fraudster of them all, Bernard Madoff. He remembers sitting in his office and asking himself, how was this missed? So he grabbed a dry erase marker, and on the whiteboard in his office, he started profiling Madoff along with the other individuals. When he was done, he had concluded that Donald Cressy's theory of the three elements that must be present and come together for occupational fraud to take place, which we know are pressure, opportunity, and rationalization, were sound, but they needed to be updated and augmented based on his profiling exercise. So he added two additional elements, perceived competence and arrogance, 
which are human elements, and thus the fraud Pentagon was officially born. Knowing what might provoke an employee, even at otherwise lawful individual, to blur the line between legal and illegal activity is the key to fighting fraud effectively. Fraud is more likely to occur when someone has an incentive, pressure, to commit fraud, weak controls, the opportunity for a person to do so, and the person can rationalize his or her fraudulent behavior. Today's fraudster is even more independent-minded and armed with more information and access. Corporate culture today celebrates wealth and fame, creating a push among employees for hefty payouts and greater recognition. These differences support the need to expand on Cressy's theory to the five-sided pedagogy. When when an employee's competence or power to perform and arrogance or lack of conscience are factored into the conditions which are out in the marketplace today, competent expands on Cressy's element of opportunity to include an individual's ability to override internal controls and to socially control the situation to his or her advantage by selling it to others, coercing them and bullying them into doing something improper, including not acting at all. Arrogance or lack of conscience is an attitude of superiority and entitlement or greed on the part of a person who believes that corporate policies and procedures simply do not apply. Uncheck these five elements, pressure, opportunity, rationalization, competence, and arrogance can provoke an individual to commit fraud. So, Jay, we're going to have uh, one more uh, article this week on the Bluebell case, and it comes to us from Mike Peregrine. And David Rosenblum, two partners at McDermott, Will and Emery, and they talk about the criminal charges against former CEO and president Paul Cruz. And what they they bring up a really interesting analysis. And that analysis is that this is not the Watergate uh, situation where uh, it's a cover up that's caused criminal charges to be brought against Paul Cruz. This is something different. And here. Uh, Keeping your mouth shut uh, is not without risk. And I say that because one of the areas in the indictment or criminal information that was filed rather against Cruz said that certain Bluebell employees uh, wanted to uh, have a press release. Um, The Bluebell employees from the comms department wanted a press release notifying the public of the risks of ingesting listeria-contaminated products, and Cruz uh, refused to allow that to go out. So this is a situation where he said nothing. Now, he did do some other things. He told other employees not to uh, be forthright in their communications with customers. But he was indicted not for the um, charges that the company pled guilty for, around uh, uh, food that was tainted being released, but around these communications. So that's something different, and they identify this as a new risk. So uh, I was particularly attuned to the to the part where uh, keeping your mouth shut may not be a strategy if there's even knowledge within your company that uh, the uh, – Companies engaging in conduct 
which could put lives at risk. Now, um, as I said many times, uh, bad facts make bad law, and these are horrible facts, and people died from the facts of Bluebell not communicating the dangers of the Listeria crisis and not uh, talking to their customers. Nevertheless, uh, if this prosecution is successful under that, it could well uh, uh, portend uh, a new level of scrutiny for senior executives and perhaps even board members. So, Tom, this is the part of our podcast when we talk about some of the other offerings that you have on the Compliance Podcast Network. On what's become a quick favorite, can you tell us uh, what you are up to with the Compliance Life? So the Compliance Life has become a huge favorite, Jay. Uh, And in fact, it's uh, actually, remember when I did the podcast, uh, when we did the AMI podcast series on uh, health care and monitoring, and we had those just stunning numbers uh, mm-hmm. It's all the way. Well, this actually has exceeded that. Um, in uh, the last episode, we had uh, over 4,500 hits and downloads on one episode. And it's the story of uh, a CCO's journey to the compliance chair, to being the chief compliance officer. And this month, I uh, focused on Ellen Hunt. And today, or rather this week, rather, Ellen talks about what opportunities are available for someone after the CCO chair. And uh, it is done uh, very well. Uh, Obviously, you have a a great role to play as moving up to a board. But Ellen really talks about some other opportunities. I'm going to release all four podcasts uh, uh, today, um, <clears throat> contemporaneously. So, uh, if you haven't checked them out, please ch- check them out. I also had this week on compliance and coronavirus, Julie Myers Wood, who we referenced a little bit earlier, talked about data privacy in the time of COVID-19. Melissa Koch had a really interesting uh, idea, which she called platformizing compliance during the health crisis. So check that out. I've uh, interviewed Melissa for a couple of podcasts, and she really uh, is one sharp cookie and got some great things to say about the digital transformation of compliance. And finally, Marianne Fairmouth, and she is a corporate recruiter, excuse me, a headhunter and recruiter, and she talks about what can you do if you're laid off in this uh, economic dislocation. So some great uh, thoughts from Marianne as well. And then finally, um, We had the last four days of the month of May on 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program, where we took a look at uh, written standards on Tuesday, enforcement policies featuring uh, enforcement actions, rather, featuring facilitation payments, uh, policies around facilitation payments, policies for third parties. That was uh, yesterday on Thursday. And then today we have policies on extortion payments. So check out the final uh, four episodes of 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance program on written standards. Good stuff, Tom. Um, So 14 years ago today, Mrs. Monitor and I stood on the green at a country club in Tarzana, California, and we tied the knot. So I thought I would be remiss by not uh, celebrating my 14th wedding anniversary and saying that uh, I couldn't do any of this without you and without the girls. So thanks so much for uh, choosing to be mine. And uh, we can't go out to a nice dinner and uh, there's will probably be a very unmemorable uh, wedding day, but I wanted to uh, send you all my love and best. Well, what a great way uh, to end uh, this episode of This Week in FCPA. You want to take us home, Jay? Sure. 
on behalf of Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and the Voice of Compliance, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, would like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 207, for the week ending May 29th, 2020, for the end of May edition, as we move into the warmer months in spring. May good health and safety be yours, and we'll talk to you next week. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you look at the Compliance Podcast Network site, compliancepodcastnetwork.net, you'll see we have a speaker option that you can leave us a voice message if you're something you'd like Jay and I to take up as a topic or you have some uh, suggestions for us for potential guests. Jay's email, if you want to contact him via email, is jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. I'm, of course, at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thank you again for listening to this week of This Week in FCPA, the end of May edition. I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories which caught our eye. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.